Chapter Three of *The Girl in the Golden Atom* by Ray Cummings. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. After forty-eight hours, the banker snored stertorously from his mattress in a corner of the room. In an easy chair nearby, with his feet on the table, lay the very young man sleeping. Also, the doctor and the big business man sat by the handkerchief, conversing in low tones. How long has it been now? Asked the latter. Just forty hours, answered the doctor, and he said that forty-eight hours was the limit. He should come back at about ten tonight. I wonder if he will come back? Questioned the big business man nervously. Lord, I wish he wouldn't snore so loud. He added irritably, nodding in the direction of the banker. They were silent for a moment, and then he went on. You'd better try to sleep a little while, Frank. You're worn out. I'll watch here. I suppose I should," answered the doctor wearily. "Wake up that kid. He's sleeping most of the time. No, I'll watch," repeated the big business man. "You lie down over there." The doctor did so while the other settled himself more comfortably on a cushion beside the handkerchief and prepared for his lonely watching. The doctor apparently dropped off to sleep at once, for he did not speak again. The big business man sat staring steadily at the ring, bending nearer to it occasionally. Every ten or fifteen minutes, he looked at his watch. Perhaps an hour had passed in this way when the very young man suddenly sat up and yawned. "Haven't they come back yet?" he asked in a sleepy voice. The big business man answered in a much lower tone. What do you mean, they? I dreamed that he brought the girl back with him," said the very young man. Well, if they did, they have not arrived. You'd better go back to sleep. We've got six or seven hours yet, maybe more. The very young man rose and crossed the room. No, I'll watch a while," he said, seating himself on the floor. What time is it? Quarter to three. He said he'd be back by ten tonight. I'm crazy to see that girl. The big business man rose and went over to a dinner tray standing near the door. Lord, I'm hungry. I must have forgotten to eat today. He lifted up one of the silver covers. What he saw evidently encouraged him, for he drew up a chair and began his lunch. The very young man lighted a cigarette. It will be the tragedy of my life, he said, if he never comes back. The big business man smiled. How about his life? He answered, but the very young man had fallen into a reverie and did not reply. The big business man finished his lunch in silence and was just about to light a cigar when a sharp exclamation brought him hastily to his feet. Come here, quick! I see something. The very young man had his face close to the ring and was trembling violently. The other pushed him back. Let me see where. There, by the scratch, he's lying there. I can see him. The big business man looked and then hurriedly woke the doctor. He's come back, he said briefly. You can see him there. The doctor bent down over the ring while the others woke up the banker. He doesn't seem to be getting any bigger, said the very young man. He's just lying there. Maybe he's dead. What shall we do? Asked the big business man, and made as if to pick up the ring. The doctor shoved him away. Don't do that, he said sharply. Do you want to kill him? 
"'He's sitting up,' cried the very young man. "'He's all right.' "'He must have fainted,' said the doctor. "'Probably he's taking more of the drug now.' "'He's much larger,' said the very young man. "'Look at him.' The tiny figure was sitting sideways on the ring, with its feet hanging over the outer edge. It was growing precipitably larger each instant, and in a moment it slipped down off the ring and sank in a heap on the handkerchief. "'Good heavens, look at him!' cried the big businessman. "'He's all covered with blood.' The little figure presented a ghastly sight. As it steadily grew larger, they could see and recognize the chemist's haggard face, his cheek and neck stained with blood, and his white suit covered with dirt. "'Look at his feet,' whispered the big businessman. They were horribly cut and bruised and greatly swollen. The doctor bent over and whispered gently, "'What can I do to help you?' The chemist shook his head. His body, lying prone upon the handkerchief, had torn it apart in growing. When he was about twelve inches in length, he raised his head. The doctor bent closer. "'Some brandy, please,' said a wraith of the chemist's voice. It was barely audible. "'He wants some brandy,' called the doctor. The very young man looked hastily around, then opened the door and dashed madly out of the room. When he returned, the chemist had grown to nearly four feet. He was sitting on the floor with his back against the doctor's knees. The big businessman was wiping the blood off his face with a damp napkin. "'Here,' cried the very young man, thrusting forth the brandy. The chemist drank a little of it. Then he sat up, evidently somewhat revived. "'I seem to have stopped growing,' he said. "'Let's finish it up now. God, how I want to be the right size again,' he added fervently. The doctor helped him extract the vials from under his arm, and the chemist touched one of the pills to his tongue. Then he sank back, closing his eyes. "'I think that should be about enough,' he murmured. No one spoke for nearly ten minutes. Gradually, the chemist's body grew, the doctor shifting his position several times as it became larger. It seemed finally to have stopped growing, and was apparently near its former size. "'Is he asleep?' whispered the very young man. The chemist opened his eyes. "'No,' he answered. "'I'm all right now, I think.' He rose to his feet, the doctor and the big businessman supporting him on either side. "'Sit down and tell us about it,' said the very young man. "'Did you find the girl?' The chemist smiled wearily. "'Gentlemen, I cannot talk now. Let me have a bath and some dinner. Then I will tell you all about it.' The doctor rang for an attendant and led the chemist to the door, throwing a blanket around him as he did so. In the doorway, the chemist paused and looked back with a wan smile over the wreck of the room. "'Give me an hour,' he said, "'and eat something yourselves while I'm gone.' Then he left, closing the door after him. When he returned, fully dressed in clothes that were ludicrously large for him, the room had been straightened up and his four friends were finishing their meal. He took his place among them quietly and lighted a cigar. "'Well, gentlemen, I suppose that you are interested to hear what happened to me,' he began. The very young man asked his usual question. "'Let him alone,' said the doctor. "'You will hear it all soon enough.' "'Was it all as you expected?' asked the banker. It was his first remark since the chemist returned. 
To a great extent, yes, answered the chemist. But I had better tell you just what happened. The very young man nodded his eager agreement. When I took those first four pills, began the chemist in a quiet, even tone, my immediate sensation was a sudden reeling of the senses, combined with an extreme nausea. This latter feeling passed after a moment. You will remember that I seated myself upon the floor and closed my eyes. When I opened them, my head had steadied itself somewhat, but I was oppressed by a curious feeling of drowsiness, impossible to shake off. My first mental impression was one of wonderment when I saw you all begin to increase in size. I remember standing up beside that chair, which was then half again its normal size, and you, indicating the doctor, towered beside me as a giant of nine or ten feet high. Steadily upward, with a curious crawling motion, grew the room and all its contents. Except for the feeling of sleep that oppressed me, I felt quite my usual self. No change appeared happening to me, but everything else seemed to be growing to gigantic and terrifying proportions. Can you imagine a human being a hundred feet high? This is how you looked to me as I stepped upon that huge expanse of black silk and shouted my last goodbye to you. Over to my left lay the ring, apparently fifteen or twenty feet away. I started to walk toward it, but although it grew rapidly larger, the distance separating me from it seemed to increase rather than lessen. Then I ran, and by the time I arrived, it stood higher than my waist, a beautiful, shaggy, golden pit. I jumped upon its rim and clung to it tightly. I could feel it growing beneath me as I sat. After a moment, I climbed upon its top surface and started to walk toward the point where I knew the scratch to be. I found myself now, as I looked about, walking upon a narrow, though ever-broadening, curved path. The ground beneath my feet appeared to be a rough, yellowish quartz. This path grew rougher as I advanced. Below the bulging edge of the path, on both sides, lay a shining black plain, ridged and indented, and with a sun-like sheen on the higher portions of the ridges. On the one hand, this black plain stretched in an unbroken expanse to the horizon. On the other, it appeared as a circular valley enclosed by a shining yellow wall. The way had now become extraordinarily rough. I bore to the left as I advanced, keeping close to the outer edge. The other edge of the path I could not see. I clambered along hastily, and after a few moments was confronted by a row of rocks and boulders lying directly across my line of progress. I followed their course for a short distance, and finally found a space through which I could pass. The transverse ridge was perhaps a hundred feet deep. Behind it, and extending in a parallel direction, lay a tremendous valley. I knew then I had reached my first objective. I sat down on the brink of the precipice and watched the cavern growing ever wider and deeper. Then I realized that I must begin my descent if ever I was to reach the bottom. For perhaps six hours I climbed steadily downwards. It was a fairly easy descent, after the first little while, for the ground seemed to open up before me as I advanced, changing its contour so constantly that I was never at a loss for an easy downward path. 
My feet suffered cruelly from the shaggy, metallic ground, and I soon had to stop and rig a sort of protection for the soles of them from a portion of the harness over my shoulder. According to the stature I was when I reached the bottom, I had descended perhaps 12,000 feet during this time. The latter part of the journey found me nearing the bottom of the canyon. Objects around me no longer seemed to increase in size, as had been constantly the case before, and I reasoned that probably my stature was remaining constant. I noticed, too, as I advanced, a curious alteration in the form of light around me. The glare from above, the sky showed only as a narrow, dull ribbon of blue, barely penetrated to the depths of the canyon floor. But all about me there was a soft radiance seeming to emanate from the rocks themselves. The sides of the canyon were shaggy and rough beyond anything I had ever seen. Huge boulders, hundreds of feet in diameter, were embedded in them. The bottom was also strewn with similar gigantic rocks. I surveyed this lonely waste for some time in dismay, not knowing in what direction lay my goal. I knew that I was at the bottom of the scratch, and by the comparison of its size I realized I was well started on my journey. I have not told you, gentlemen, that at the time I marked the ring, I made a deeper indentation in one portion of the scratch, and focused the microscope upon that. This indentation I now searched for. Luckily, I found it, less than half a mile away, an almost circular pit, perhaps five miles in diameter, with shining walls extending downwards into blackness. There seemed no possible way of descending into it, so I sat down near its edge to think out my plan of action. I realized now that I was faint and hungry, and whatever I did must be done quickly. I could turn back to you, or I could go on. I decided to risk the latter course, and took twelve more of the pills, three times my original dose. The chemist paused for a moment, but his auditors were much too intent to question him. Then he resumed in his former matter-of-fact tone. After my vertigo had passed somewhat, it was much more severe this time, I looked up and found my surroundings growing at a far more rapid rate than before. I staggered to the edge of the pit. It was opening up and widening out at an astonishing rate. Already its sides were becoming rough and broken, and I saw many places where a descent would be possible. The feeling of sleep that had formerly merely oppressed me, combined now with my physical fatigue and the larger dose of the drug I had taken, became almost intolerable. I yielded to it for a moment, lying down on a crag near the edge of the pit. I must have become almost immediately unconscious, and remained so for a considerable time. I can remember a horrible sensation of sliding headlong for what seemed like hours. I felt that I was sliding or falling downward. I tried to rouse, but could not. Then came absolute oblivion. When I recovered my senses, I was lying partly covered by a mass of smooth, shining pebbles. I was bruised and battered from head to foot, in far worse condition than you first saw me when I returned. I sat up and looked around. Beside me, sloped upward, at an apparently increasing angle, a tremendous glossy plain. This extended as far as I could see, 
both to the right and left, and upward into the blackness of the sky overhead. It was this plane that had evidently broken my fall, and I had been sliding down it, bringing with me a considerable mass of rocks and boulders. As my senses became clearer, I saw I was lying on a fairly level floor. I could see perhaps two miles in each direction. Beyond that, there was only darkness. The sky overhead was unbroken by stars or light of any kind. I should have been in total darkness, except, as I have told you before, that everything, even the blackness itself, seemed to be self-luminous. The incline down which I had fallen was composed of some smooth substance suggesting black marble. The floor underfoot was quite different, more of a metallic quality, with a curious corrugation. Before me, in the dim distance, I could just make out a tiny range of hills. I arose after a time and started weakly to walk toward these hills. Though I was faint and dizzy from my fall and the lack of food, I walked for perhaps half an hour, following closely the edge of the incline. No change in my visual surroundings occurred, except that I seemed gradually to be approaching the line of the hills. My situation at this time, as I turned it over in my mind, appeared hopelessly desperate, and I admit I neither expected to reach my destination nor to be able to return to my own world. A sudden change in the feeling of the ground underfoot brought me to myself. I bent down and found I was treading on vegetation, a tiny forest extending for quite a distance in front and to the side of me. A few steps ahead, a little silver ribbon threaded its way through the trees. This I judged to be water. New hope possessed me at this discovery. I sat down at once and took a portion of another of the pills. I must again have fallen asleep. When I awoke, somewhat refreshed, I found myself lying beside the huge trunk of a fallen tree. I was in what had evidently once been a deep forest but which now was almost utterly desolate. Only here and there were the trees left standing. For the most part they were lying in a crushed and tangled mass, many of them partially embedded in the ground. I cannot express adequately to you, gentlemen, what an evidence of tremendous superhuman power this scene presented. No storm, no lightning, nor any attack of the elements could have produced more than a fraction of the destruction I saw all around me. I climbed cautiously upon the fallen tree trunk, and from this elevation had a much better view of my surroundings. I appeared to be near one end of the desolated area, which extended in a path about a half a mile wide and several miles deep. In front, a thousand feet away, perhaps, lay the unbroken forest. Descending from the tree trunk, I walked in this direction, reaching the edge of the woods after possibly an hour of the most arduous traveling of my whole journey. During this time, almost my only thought, was the necessity of obtaining food. I looked about me as I advanced, and on one of the falling tree trunks I found a sort of vine growing. This vine bore a profusion of small gray berries, much like our huckleberries. They proved similar in taste and I sat down and ate a quantity. When I reached the edge of the forest, I felt somewhat stronger. 
I had seen up to this time no sign of animal life whatever. Now, as I stood silent, I could hear all around me all the multitudinous tiny voices of the woods. Insect life stirred underfoot, and in the trees above an occasional bird flitted to and fro. Perhaps I am giving you a picture of our own world. I do not mean to do so. You must remember that above me there was no sky, just blackness, and yet so much light illuminated the scene that I could not believe it was other than what we would call daytime. Objects in the forest were as well lighted, better probably than they would be under similar circumstances in our own world. The trees were a huge size compared to my present stature, straight upstanding trunks, with no branches until the very near top. They were bluish-gray in color, and many of them well covered with the berry vine I have mentioned. The leaves overhead seemed to be blue. In fact, the predominating color of all the vegetation was blue, just as in our world it is green. The ground was covered with dead leaves, mold, and a sort of gray moss, fungus, of a similar color appeared, but of this I did not eat. I had penetrated perhaps two miles into the forest when I came unexpectedly to the bank of a broad, smooth-flowing river, its silver surface seeming to radiate waves of the characteristic phosphorescent light. I found it cold, pure-tasting water, and I drank long and deeply. Then I remember lying down upon the mossy bank and in a moment utterly worn out, I again fell asleep. End of chapter 3